Hi, everybody. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Josh Falk. I am one of the pastors here on staff at the church, and I have some exciting news. I just turned 30, so I am a, yeah, woo. Um, so I am a 30-something now, so you can raise your expectations. No, I'm just kidding. Um, if you didn't know this, Rod and I share a birthday. So I turned 30, and he turned a little bit older than that. Um, so say happy birthday to him when you see him. Anyway, okay, so super excited to, to be up here with you guys. We're in our second week of this four-week series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of believers in the city of Thessalonica. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they had gone to Thessalonica to start a church. And we know that the new Thessalonian believers there, they were facing persecution and pressure, and a number of people in Thessalonica were hostile to the gospel, okay? That was part of the pressure they were facing. For lots of different reasons, it was countercultural, it, it challenged the status quo and all these things. And we know this persecution eventually becomes violent, we know that historically, uh, but at this time, um, the people outside the church were launching more of like a smear campaign against Paul, Silas, and Timothy to destroy their reputation. So eventually, like Kyle talked about last week, they get run out of town, okay? Um, they were only there for a few months, so they, they go to Thessalonica, they start this church with this new group of believers, and they are gone within a few months. And you have these people from the outside who are seeking to destroy Paul, Silas, and Timothy's reputation. So, you can imagine, Paul is concerned. He is concerned that the believers might lose trust in him, or worse, lose their faith in God. So, Paul has a serious problem on his hands, but he can't just jump on Delta Airlines to fly out to Thessalonica real fast. The best he can do is send a letter, you know, OG snail mail, okay? So he writes this letter, and as you will see, as we're gonna read in chapter two today, he is defending his reputation, but he's also defending the Thessalonians' new faith. So we're gonna jump right in here. We got a lot to cover, and I'm super excited to go through this with you. So we've got verse one in chapter two of 1 Thessalonians. We're gonna start in verse one. We're gonna go to 16, uh, line by line. I'll pause kind of throughout here. So verse one, you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. Okay, so Paul is gonna repeat this like, you know language a lot in this part. And he says, you remember, you were there, all this kind of stuff. And what this tells us as we're reading is that Paul is like, Thessalonians, I know that they're spewing all these half-truths and lies about me over there, but you should know truth from fiction. Because you were there with me when I was there. Like, everything that they know about me, you know, you were there. And so, you know what actually happened, you know, um, what's being said by these people on the street is not true, Okay. So that's verse one. Verse two, we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. So Paul is saying, as you all know, back in Philippi, which is just up the road, okay, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they also planted a church there as well. It was really successful, 
But then they got arrested for doing ministry and they were publicly beaten in front of the city. They were thrown in jail. And the end, it worked out. But Paul's point is like, look, I'm not in this for the money, for the favors, for the fame. There's like no alternative motive here with me. Because everywhere I go, I get beat up. I get thrown in jail. I get made fun of. People spit on me, okay? People hate me. So like, what, you know, what's the deal here? This isn't an easy life. Verse three, okay? For the appeal we make, the appeal we make for the gospel, for the appeal we make does not spring from error. Paul's like, we're not crazy. We're out of our mind. Or impure motives. Nor are we trying to trick you. The Greek word for tricks like bait. We're not trying to bait you into something. Verse four, on the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. Okay, so in the ancient world, uh, there, news to you guys maybe, but there's no Netflix, there's no movies or TikTok or whatever, okay? And there wasn't much to do, you know, just be out and about on the street, okay? And so on the street corners, there were these speakers, these philosophical teachers, these entertainers, and they would go from city to city, and when they would come to, to town, they would draw crowds of thousands of people, because like, what else are you gonna do, okay? So you're gonna show up and look for the people that are here on the streets, and you know, you're gonna stand there and listen to them for hours. But unfortunately, a lot of these speakers had not the best reputation. They were known to show up out of nowhere, you know, draw in the big crowds, play on your fears and your emotions and all this stuff, and then they get you nice and reeled in, and then they're like, all right, can we get some money? You know, uh, can we have a favor? Um, also, I need a place to stay tonight. Who's got me? You know, and they expect a lot of applause, right? And so this is kind of the thing that Paul is, is fighting against because they're like, yeah, Paul's just one of those guys. And Paul's like, don't get it twisted. You guys were there. We never did any of that, not one time. But instead he says in verse six, we were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Paul's like, you know what we could have done? We could say, hey, we're apostles of Jesus, you know, the king of kings, we're a big deal. Give us money, food, buy us a Tesla, I'll take those Taylor Swift tickets, you know, all those stuff, right? And so Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, you guys were there. Not one time did we ever do that. Now, here in verse seven, there is gonna be a shift, okay? So up until now, Paul is saying, you know, we are not about that. You know, all these things are saying that we were about, we are not. And you were there and you knew it, uh, and you know it. But now here in verse seven and on, he's gonna be talking about like, Here's what we were about when we were with you, okay? So he says in verse seven, instead, we were like young children among you. The idea behind this word young children in the Greek is like innocence, okay? So the, there is an innocence to Paul, Silas, and Timothy, like an infant or a young child. You know, they don't, when they come up to you, uh, a very young child, they don't have like a hidden agenda. Um, I'm blessed to have a lot of nieces and nephews. And when they were really little, they would you know, make these cards, these, these drawings of 
you know, whatever, and they would write like, I love you on it, and they would like anticipate all week, you know, giving it to me and my wife, and they didn't have any ulterior motive. They just did it like genuinely out of love. It was innocent, and that's what Paul is saying. Paul's like, dude, our intentions were pure, genuine, innocent, and now Paul is gonna flip the, meta, uh, the metaphor here. So he's saying, we were like young children among you. Now he's like, and just as a nursing mother, so now they're nursing mothers, okay? So Paul says, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you, because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. So Paul flips the metaphor, and now they're nursing moms, him, Silas, and Timothy, okay? Nursing moms, ready? So this is an incredibly rich metaphor. Children literally depend on mom for survival. A nursing mother has to be with the baby 24-7. Loving, caring, nurturing, meeting the needs of the baby, serving. Paul says, that's what I was like with you. I was like a nursing mother. Verse nine, surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship, we worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. Okay, so Paul was a leather worker by trade. He made tents. And when Paul came to a new city like Thessalonica, yeah, he was here to plant a church, but he also had to set up shop for his business. So, um, you know, it says he worked day and night. So just imagine he's waking up early and he's getting to work on his leather working and tent making. And then like during the day when people are awake, he's teaching and he's preaching. And then at night when people are checking in for dinner, a glass of wine or whatever, he is back to work making tents, getting ready for the next day. And so this is what Paul did and why did he do it? Because culturally at the time, you could ask for money if you were a speaker, like all these people, all these uh, people I talked about that come to town and they would entertain, you know, they would teach on the street corners and they would ask for money. It was kind of the norm. Like, it's almost like if you go out to lunch later, you go to Chow Osteria and you have a, a, a great waiter, they're gonna expect like a 20%-ish tip. That's just how it is here. And in the same way, a speaker, um, it was kind of expected that they would ask for money or they would have that expectation. But Paul refused. He did not take a dime, not because it was wrong, but because he did not want people to at all question that, you know, that he was like these other people in town that were kind of doing this for the money. He, did, he wanted to be above reproach. He wanted to be able to preach the gospel free of charge without anyone being able to question his agenda or, and just be able to have this clean reputation. Okay, now continuing in verse 10. You are witnesses, there it is again. Paul's like, again, you guys were there. You bore witness to this. You are witnesses, and so is God, and of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Now, you might look at this passage and go like, on the one hand, this is really amazing. Um, you know, you were there, you shared our lives with us, all this stuff. And he says, you know how holy, righteous, and blameless we were. And on the other hand, you're like, he said, what? He said, like, I'm holy, righteous, and blameless. And so we're gonna come back to this later, okay? Um, let's keep going. Verse 11 and 12. For you know that we dealt with each of you 
and now he's flipping this metaphor again, get ready, as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So in the Greco-Roman culture, it was a father's job, not the mother's or teacher. It was the father's job to educate the children. So Paul is not only saying that we were like, you know, a nursing mom being there for you 24-7 in care and love and serving you, but we are also like fathers teaching you how to follow Jesus day in and day out, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. And then he goes on in verse 13. And we also thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, pause real quick, the word of God, you might be thinking the Bible, but in the Bible, when it's talking about the word of God, it's talking about the gospel, the message, the good news of Jesus in the kingdom of God. And so Paul is saying, listen, when you heard about the gospel, when you heard that Jesus is Lord, that he died and he was buried and he rose again, which you heard from us, continuing in verse 13, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. So the, these churches that are around Jerusalem, which is in southern Judea, he's saying you became imitators of these Jewish churches down in the south of Israel. And here's how you became imitators of them. Verse 14, you suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. He's like, you were persecuted just like the Jewish followers of Jesus in the south of Israel were persecuted. And by the way, when, when Paul is writing about the Jews here, it's not like this racist comment at all. Paul himself was Jewish. He's had plenty of nice things to say about Jewish followers of Jesus. By Jews, he specifically means those in verse 15. Those who killed the Lord Jesus, the prophets, you know, um, and also drove us out. So he's talking about, you know, for like centuries, those who were against the prophets that God sent, those who were against Jesus who God sent, and those who pushed us out of Thessalonica, you know? And so he's talking about this group of people who have been hostile towards God. And so they say, they displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they are always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. You're like, whoa, okay, there's a big turn there real fast, and you were like, what's going on here? Okay, so we're talking about fathers and mothers, now we're talking about the wrath of God. Okay, so these last few verses of Paul uses some intense language about God's wrath and heaping up sins to the limit, and these heaping up, this heaping up of sins language, it points to Genesis 15, where it says, um, you know, the reason that justice had not yet come to the Canaanites who were awful and doing all these evil and destructive things was because their sins had not yet reached their limit. And so this is, this is the whole sermon of itself. So I'm just gonna sum this up and say Paul's point, you know, the point here is God's wrath, God's judgment isn't like this unpredictable, 
quick-tempered kind of wrath. It's just, and it's patient, and it's measured, and it's intelligent and compassionate kind of wrath. And so throughout the Old Testament, we see examples of how God again and again showed grace and gave opportunities for people to change. And so the point of Paul's intensity here isn't vengeance, it's not hate. He's not saying, don't worry, my Thessalonian friends, the Jews are going down finally for all the things that they've done. He's not saying that, They're, he's, like, he's saying, hang in there. God is on it, his justice is at work, and in time it will end. He is comforting the Thessalonians in the midst of persecution and the threats and the pressures that they face. And Paul is saying, God is on it. He is present, his justice is at work, and in time it will end. So what does Paul say here in these 16 verses, okay? You can come back to me now if I lost you in verse 12, okay? Come on back. We're, we're now gonna look at these 16 verses and go, what do they mean for us today? One of the main things that Paul is saying here um, throughout this passage is he's like, here's how I live and here's how you should live as well. And this is a regular thing that Paul would say. Um, in other letters, you know, he'd say a similar thing, like flat out, like, hey, you, live how I live, okay? Real quick, he says, follow my example as I follow Christ, 1 Corinthians. He says, join together in following my example, Philippians 3. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, okay, 2 Thessalonians 3. So Paul has reiterated this a lot, not just in this passage. It's kind of crazy, right? Like, could you imagine me standing up here and going, guys, no sermon needed today. Um, my life is actually the sermon, so um, just be like me and you'll have an amazing life. And three of you would be like, wow, like that's amazing. And everyone else would be like, wow, he turned 30 and he just went down, like, you know what I'm saying? You'd be like, whoa, okay? And so Paul here is subtle and he's brilliant because on the surface, he's defending himself against false allegations. But underneath, he is telling the Thessalonians how they are to live. So here, we're gonna go through a few things of what we can learn from Paul and his model of following Jesus, okay? So number one, we're gonna look at Paul's example of how he lived as a leader. So Paul was an apostle. He was a key leader in the early church. And uh, we may not be apostles in the early church per se, but we all have areas of leadership that God has given to us. Wherever, whatever your influence is, whatever size and shape that it's in, um, it could be that you're a teacher in a classroom, you could be a CEO or a, a department leader in an organization, you could be in public office, you could be a small group leader, you could be an oldest sibling, you could be um, parents, a parent, any parent in the room, you're a leader, grandparent, all of that. And so leadership roles, they come in different shapes and sizes. And there is so much that we can take from Paul about leadership here. N.T. Wright, who is a theologian, uh, his commentary on the passage, he says this. He says, this is a passage that ought to be written out in large letters, hanging on the wall in every Christian leader's house, or perhaps better engraved in letters of gold on his or her heart. Okay, so we have plaques out in the lobby. You can grab one, hang it up in your house. Um, just kidding. So 
um, we've all been called by God to steward the leadership roles that he has entrusted to us. And so what if we, in those leadership roles, follow Paul's example? Well, he makes it real clear that leadership is hard. Leadership is hard because you have to be willing to be unpopular at times. Because you know, a leader, by definition, you're out in front, ahead of the pack, not because you think you're better than everyone else kind of way, healthy leaders, but who, you know, but who is out in front saying like, hey, follow me. You know, if you're a leader, you're out in front, you're saying to your kids, to your employees, whoever, hey, follow me. But to do that, you have to invite and call and push and pull those who are following you out of their comfort zone and into this new direction, this different direction that you're headed in. And so the problem with, with this is that most of us really love our comfort zones. We are just fine right where we are, and hence this tension that exists between leaders and followers. And whatever leadership style you are, whatever your leadership role is, all leaders are facing the same task at hand. How do I get these people following me to leave their comfort zone and do something that they don't wanna do? Again, it's not like you're being manipulative or anything like that, because, you know, when we're leading people, we're trying to take them somewhere that's better, that's different, and that is really hard to go somewhere that's different. So we wanna get people to do something that's hard and difficult, and usually everything that's worth doing is hard and difficult. So how does Paul, as a leader, lead these Thessalonians out of their comfort zone and into something that's next and better. Well, number one, Paul in verse seven says, we were like a nursing mother caring for her children because we loved you so much. So here's the very first basic thing. People will never follow you. Your kids, your small group, your employees, whoever it is that you lead or mentor, they will never follow you no matter how gifted you are how accomplished you are if you don't love and care for them. That is the starting point. In number two, we see in verse 11, Paul says, you know, we deal with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives that are worthy of God. Paul's metaphor for leading is parenting. Like, as a parent, you're the ultimate leader. That's what he's saying, right? And so I'm not a parent, and there's many of you in the room that are or hoping to be, and um, if you're like me and aren't a parent, we had parents, and we've seen a lot of parents, right? And so here's the thing about parenting that we can all agree on. It's a second job. It's really, really hard. And if you just do the base level of parenting, like the maintenance level, you know, feeding, clothing, bathing, all this stuff, um, and with whatever you have left, you're loving your kids, hopefully, right? And that's just like the baseline that like parents are like, yeah, yeah, we gotta do that, okay? And that's really hard, and that's really exhausting just in and of itself. But then on top of that, what do parents hope to do? Parents, um, parents hope to be really intentional with how they develop their children. Parents hope to be really intentional with how they disciple and mentor their children, how they draw out their potential and all that God has created them to be. You want your kids to thrive academically. You want them to be emotionally mature and healthy. You want them to grow in their faith in Jesus, and you want that faith to last. 
them to have good friendships and relationships. It goes on. Parenting is a ridiculous amount of work, and it never stops. Your role, change, you know, your role changes as the kids grow, right? You're teaching them to brush their teeth and potty training and all this stuff. And then when they're getting older, it's conversations about integrity and relationships and faith and the current events in the world. And it's so exhausting. But pretty much any parent I know, including my own parents, would say, but it's so worth it. So here's the takeaway for us as leaders. Whatever role of leadership you have, yeah, it's exhausting. Yeah, it's hard. But think about what you are trying to do, what God has entrusted and called you to do. You are trying to help people grow into being all that God has created them to be. So whoever God has entrusted you to lead, to mentor, to disciple, love for them, love them, care for them, nurture them like a nursing mother nurtures, you know, nurtures a baby, and encourage and comfort and urge them towards being all that God has created them to be. It takes a lot of love and a lot of hard work. Now, the second thing that we see Paul, that we, we should look at his example and try to put into our own lives, is Paul's example as a missionary. Okay, so the word missionary means sent one, one who carries the gospel message of Jesus to the world. So if you are a follower of Jesus, then you are a missionary. You are an ambassador carrying the gospel to the world. Wherever you are, wherever you're watching from, whether you've been in Northern Virginia for five seconds or you've been here your whole life or you're eventually gonna move, wherever you are, God has placed you there and called you there to carry the gospel message. Here's what Paul says about living as a sent one to where God has called you. He says in verse four, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, God has entrusted you with the message of the gospel. And here are four things that we learn from Paul about how do, how do we live as a missionary, how do we live as being a sent person to where God has called us. Four things real fast. Number one, love. We already read in verse eight, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so he cared for you because we loved you so much. The driving motivation for Paul to preach the gospel and to plant this church in Thessalonica and go through all that pain and, and hard stuff was not so he could have this great story to brag about. It wasn't for the money, it wasn't for the fame, it was love for the people of Thessalonica who have yet to know and follow Jesus. So number one is love. Number two is presence. Paul says, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. Paul wasn't just telling people about Jesus. He was with people. He lived shoulder to shoulder with people. The gospel has to become flesh. You know, when we think about Jesus, we might think about, okay, yeah, Jesus, he preached to crowds of a thousands, you know, and, and he did do that. But here's sometimes what we forget is that when Jesus was often preaching, he was preaching to mostly religious people, to Jewish people who had a framework for God. They had a framework for the Messiah. But what do we see Jesus doing when he met a non-believer, an irreligious person? 
Well, he usually started by having dinner with them, eating and laughing and asking questions and listening. And it was out of those relationships that Jesus called them to repent, to believe and follow him and enter into the kingdom of God. And so living as a missionary, it's really about just showing up. Whatever God has called you to, whoever God has called you to, love them, care for them, um, listen and laugh with them, endure through the good and the bad times with them. Number three, Paul's way of life. In verse 10, Paul says, you are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Paul lived out his faith in a compelling, undeniable, what in the world is going on with that guy kind of way. And as we continually grow in our relationship with Christ, the kingdom of God should come, become more and more on display in our lives. In the way, uh, in our sexuality, in our relationships, in our marriage, in our singleness, in our job, through the words that we speak or the, the words that we don't speak, that the kingdom of God should come more and more on display as we grow closer to Christ. So, and then the last thing is the gospel. That in verse 13, Paul writes, we also thank God continually for receiving the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God is indeed at work in you who believe. So loving those who are in our life who don't yet know Jesus is really important. And, and being with them is really important. And modeling Christ in our life is really important. But those things have to eventually move towards the gospel. At some point, we have to tell people the good news, that the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus is real. It happened, it's true, and it will change your life. That we have to, at some point, get there with these people that God has called us to carry the gospel message to. So, here's the question. Who has God put in your life who doesn't know Jesus? a friend, a family member, someone that you work with, a neighbor, and I want you to put that relationship through these four things that we just talked about. Number one, they are worthy of love. They are an image bearer made in the image of God, loved by the creator of the universe. And out of our relationship with God, we can love them and, and embody Christ's love to them. Number two, presence. Be with them through the hard and easy, when they're cool and when they're not cool. Number three, way of life. Live in such a way that the gospel of Jesus, the kingdom of God, becomes more and more on display in our lives. And finally, when the time is right, tell them about Jesus. Tell them what God has done in your life. Tell them your story of how God has transformed you. Because we are all missionaries, every single one of us. We can learn from how Paul was a missionary and we can learn from him as, as how he was a leader. And what do both leaders and missionaries need? A leader and a missionary, they need a seamless connection between what they say they believe and how they actually live. 
And so this connection between what we say we believe and how we actually live is called integrity. And for all of us, there is this gap between the two because we aren't perfect. We have this integrity gap. And you know what the word being a hypocrite comes from? It's when we deny that that gap exists. We try to fake it like we don't have this gap between what we say we believe and how we actually live. Paul had a gap too. And so how can Paul with a straight face, going back to that verse when he says, I was, I was holy, I was righteous, I was blameless. How can Paul say that? And then he turns around and he also says, so you should live this way. Live lives worthy of God. How can Paul say this? Well, the answer is throughout this passage. The gospel message isn't just what Paul preached. The gospel message is what he believed deep down in his heart. Paul knew deep down in his soul that when he was at his worst, Christ died for him. That even in his worst moment, God looks at him and says, I love you still. And that is true for everyone here in this room and it's true for everybody watching online today, that God sees you. He sees all of you and he says, I love you still. And there is absolutely nothing that you can do to derail God's love for you. On our own without Christ, we can't face our gap. Paul couldn't have faced his gap without his transformed life and faith and identity in Christ. And so when we give up our own way and accept Jesus' work for us on the cross, we also are transformed and given a new identity. That's how Paul can gaze upon himself even gaze upon the gap between what he says he believes and how he actually lives and says, no, all I see is my identity in Christ. All I see is that through Christ's death and resurrection that I am made whole, I am made righteous, I am made blameless. That is the good news. And it's out of that identity that we are called to live lives worthy of God who calls us into his kingdom in glory. As we follow Jesus and we become more and more like him, that gap gets smaller and smaller. But the thing is, is it's not about earning God's love. It's, it's about living up to your identity and who God has created you and called you to be. You know, a new child in a family you expect that child to live as a member of the family, whether that child is born in the family or adopted in the family. And it's not because they need to earn the parent's love. They have that already unconditionally. You expect the child to continually grow in learning how to live as a member of the family. And in the same way, when we are in Christ, we have a new family. And as a member of that family, when we are in Christ, we are called to live like Jesus, to live a life worthy of the family name, not to earn God's love because we already have it. It's about living up to this identity that God has already created you to live. And so where is the gap in your life? 
What do you need to give over to God today? God's work in you is not finished. It's not finished. And so where is the gap? Following Jesus is this continual process of repenting and giving God everything and allowing him to renew and restore us. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much, God, for, for your word today. God, I thank you so much for just your love for us. And Father God, I, um, God, I just pray today, God, that you would um, engrave these words on our heart in gold. God, I pray that um, as we lead, God, I pray that as we go out into the world, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, God, that we would be ambassadors of your message. God, that we would carry with us the good news. God, that we'd have the courage, that we'd have the patience and the, the love and the grace, God, to just carry that into the world. God, to steward the leadership that you've given us. Father, we can only do it through you. And so God, uh, we just give you everything. God, we thank you uh, for who you are and your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name.